you have your Bibles, turn with me to Proverbs chapter 5. You know, last week we talked about wisdom with sexuality, and we, we saw that we, to, to you know, Proverbs is really, you know, the, the whole premise of it is that it would make us wise. The fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. So wisdom starts from fearing God. And then, but if we want to be wise with our sexuality and, and fearing God even in that, we, we must pursue a biblical sexuality. We saw that last week. God's word must shape how we view sex and sexuality. The reality is, though, um, the world is peddling something that is not biblical, right? All the time. We see it. We hear it. There's things that are not biblical at all about sexuality that the world is telling us about gender, about uh, men and women, and, and, and about sex itself. It's, there's so many things that are so unbiblical, so we must first pursue a biblical sexuality. Uh, then we saw that we must avoid places of temptation. If we're going to be wise, we must avoid places of temptation. Now, that's different for you, and it is different for me. We all have different temptations, and, and so, like, and, and for some, like, sexual temptation isn't really even a big struggle within their life. There's other things, but we all have an area, but in this topic, in this context, we have to avoid places uh, that lead to greater temptation, and then we must consider the consequences of sexual sin. Okay, we talked about that last week. We must consider the consequences, and I think sometimes people don't think through the repercussions of their sin. They don't think about what's actually going to happen if they follow through with some sort of sexual temptation. And so we have to consider the consequences. And then lastly, we saw that we must guard our hearts. And we saw there that guarding our hearts is really guarding our mind. Because the way that you think is what? The way that you feel. And the way you feel is the way that you act. Think, feel, act. So guarding your heart means guarding your mind. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, you must take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So there's thoughts that come in. But we must take them captive. I think sometimes even, you know, we talked about you know, what Jesus said in Matthew um, that, that if, you know, he said, you've heard it said that thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, he looks at a woman with lustful intent in his heart, has already committed adultery in his heart. And I think sometimes there's a lot of confusion even as to what that is. I believe that, like, in your heart, that lustful intent is when, like, thoughts cross our mind. It's when we entertain them and let that movie play out that now we have a problem. Does that make sense? Because the way you think then determines the way you feel, and your feelings lead to actions. And here's the thing. Your actions determine your destiny and your legacy. Those are all things that are true. We see right in God's word. But I think there's such a misunderstanding within culture, but especially within the church, I think we need to understand that, as we talked about last week, but for those who weren't here, God is the God who created sex and sexuality. He created us male and female. He created our bodies the way he did. And like all of it was God's creation. And at the end of it all, God said it was very good. Like we need to understand, but depends on how you were raised or what culture has told you, it's such a disconnect from who God is, and it shouldn't be. But the reason there's such a disconnect is because what the enemy oft always does, he's been doing it from the beginning, he creates counterfeits. What God creates and says is, is, it is good, Satan then counterfeits and wants it to become God because he knows if good things become God things, that's a bad thing and he can lead us into idolatry. Now the reason that so much of the church or the world is kind of enslaved to these sexual sins is because of misplaced worship. It's idolatry. We worship and serve something, as Paul said in Romans 1, that was created, and we worship that creation rather than the creator God. And so we must put it in its proper place. It's a good thing. God said it is very good, but, but when we worship it, when it's ultimate, when we don't take our thoughts captive, it leads us to what? To sin. To a place that is displeasing to God and breaks our relationship with him. And today, um, more in the context of marriage. And so if you are here and you're not married, don't check out. Because it's healthy for everyone to have a biblical understanding of sex and sexuality. The three primary areas that I've seen 
as a pastor, where there's conflict in marriage, the three primary areas, is finances, family relationships, and sex. Those are the three areas in marriage. Usually, if there's marriage conflict, it's going to be one of those three things. Finances, okay? How you spend your money, is there enough? And usually, if there's enough, depends on how you spend your money, right? You know, it's, it's uh, if more is going out than it's coming in, if you're spending more than you're making, like, like that's going to create problems. But then there's always... There's always the, the, the tension of what is, more, like what is more important to me is not as important to my wife. And what is more important to her is not as important to me, right? Like, I mean, I just be honest, like the house is more important to her than a car. But you can, you can drive a car, you can race a car, you can sleep in a car, you can eat in a car. You can do everything in a car you can do with a house, I mean, you really can't, it's just, but see, it's just preference. See, it's just preference. And, and to my wife, the house has to be clean. The car doesn't matter. To me, I, the, the house, I, I don't, I mean, relatively so, but the car's got to be clean, like clean, really clean. It, it's just, like, but see, we all, like, it's just different, see? So there's finances. Then the second thing is family relationships. And can I just say this? I think if husbands and wives would learn to leave and cleave, there'd be a lot less of that. Because usually the family relationships, it's in-law relationships. It's because parents, sometimes it's because parents don't let their children leave. My oldest son got married two years ago. And the day that he walked down the aisle and he said, I do, no longer is he part of, I mean, he's an extension of my family, but they are their own family, establishing their own traditions. They don't need to come under our traditions anymore. It's their traditions. What is right for their family? And sometimes parents won't let children step out into that. And then the third thing is obviously sex, where there's a lot of miss, um, uh, maybe unmet expectations. Maybe there's not good communication. And I said this last week. One of the things that the enemy does, he will do this especially to Christian couples. He will do whatever he can before you're married to get you to undress. And he will do whatever he can once you say I do to stop that. That's what he does. Because he knows that if we get involved sexually before marriage, it, it's outside of God's will, outside of God's blessing. And that he knows if he can keep us from that within marriage, it creates disunity. Because one of the things that God has created it for is unity and connection. It's to set the relationship between a husband and wife apart from every other relationship. And God said it is very good. Matthew 19. But before we go, I, I just feel like I need to spend a moment this morning and in, in, um, just maybe talking about something because we're, we're going to be talking about sex within marriage, but I think we also need to talk about singleness a little bit this morning. And Matthew 19, because I think the church... There's a larger and larger growing demographic of people within the church, and that's singles. Um, it's in some, some um, in Western culture, some estimate that there, 35% of the adults in church are single. And I don't even like using the word single because it means alone. And um, they're not alone. They're part of a family. They just aren't in a marriage covenant. But I think sometimes we've also done a disservice because we just expect that everyone will get married or should get married. But I just want to reveal to you in Scripture that it's actually sometimes God's will that some don't get married, at least for a season. It's very clear. Jesus said in Matthew 19, verse 10, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Now, he was talking about divorce. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive it, receive it. So what's Jesus saying? What he's saying is there are some who've chosen celibacy. Some God's chosen it for them. Some choose it for the sake of the kingdom. Like some choose it because they believe that they can bear more fruit for the kingdom of God as a single person than they could as a married person. Now, just Paul elaborates on this in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 
starting verse 6, he says, now as a concession. See what he's saying? As a concession, he said, this is my opinion. This is what he's saying. This is my opinion. This is the Apostle Paul. Not as command. As a concession, not as a command. I say this. I wish that all were as I might myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So what is he saying? Paul is simply saying that he wishes more people in the church would choose celibacy for the sake of the kingdom. But if you can't and you burn with passion, like you said, like then then you should get married. It's pretty simple, right? Like if if but he goes on, and he elaborates on this a little bit more in chapter 7. He goes on in verse 25, and he says, Now concerning the betrothed, that would be the engaged, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who I think the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. In other words, if you're married, that's where you're at. Like, you should be... like. Like honoring that covenant of marriage. If you are married, and then he goes on, do not seek to be free. But if you are free from a wife, do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. See what he's saying? It's, it's sort of like, it's okay if you do, it's okay if you don't. It's, it's like if you do, it's, in his opinion, it's better if you don't. But if you do, you have not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles that I would spare you of. All right? now, what do you mean the worldly troubles that come from marriage? Right? That's what literally what Paul is saying. He's saying those who get married will have different worldly troubles. Not bad, but different. That's all he's saying. So he goes on, and he says, I want you to be free from the anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, the unmarried man. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. He's saying wives are worldly. And that's not what he's saying. He's just saying he, he, he's more focused on temporal things, his, his marriage. Again, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or the betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But married woman is anxious about the worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit. Do not lay a restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, why are we talking about this on a morning where we're supposed to be talking about sex within marriage? I think because when we talk about marriage, there within the church, especially in the conservative church, there is this expectation that everyone will get married, and if there's if they don't, there's something wrong. And I think that's an unhealthy and unbiblical view because what Paul, what Jesus and Paul just clearly said that that it's okay, and in some st- instances, it's better if some people do remain single because they will bear more fruit for the kingdom and the glory of God. You're like, well, then is it unbiblical to get married? No, because Solomon also said, he who finds a wife has what? Found a good thing and has obtained favor from the Lord. God has ordained marriage. And the first command to man was what? Be fruitful and multiply. So that means there has to be marriage. Does that make sense? I'm just saying let's hold them in, like let's hold them loosely, intent, like allow the tension to be there that some won't get married. And just because God may have a call of celibacy on someone's life doesn't mean that they don't desire to be married. Does that make sense? And so I think as Christians, you know, I, I was reading an article this week in, uh, from the Gospel Coalition, and the guy said he actually went to a church at one point that had a ministry to young people. It was called <laughs> Pears and Spares. Seriously, pears and spares. How hurtful could we possibly be? I mean, it was a, le- a legitimate ministry in a legitimate church. Pears and spares. See, and, and, you know, sometimes people even say to a single person, are you still single? To with which a per- single person should say, are you still married? <laughs> like, you know, it's, like, I hope you are. But, like, do you, all I'm saying is let's be sensitive to one another. And this is a growing demographic in the church. So even when we talk about marriage and sex, we need to do it with the understanding. But here's the thing. I think culture has so led us to believe if you have chosen or God has ordained that for this season of your life, anyhow, you have lived in celibacy. That somehow you're missing out or you're lacking or you're less of a person. Now that is just simply not true. Jesus was most certainly not less of a person because he lived a celibate life.
Proverbs 18, as I said, verse 22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. But God created sex. God created sex in the marriage to create unity, to create connection. Um, he created it as an act of a way to fight against sexual immorality. He created it for pleasure, for procreation, and the enemy exploits it. He always exploits it. But if we could go to Proverbs verse chapter 5 now, I'm starting in verse 15. Now, we're going to go back and work through our outline through all the verses, but I want to start in verse 15. He says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Now, verse 15, like what, what Solomon is doing now to his son, he's saying, like, you have a place, this drinking water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well, it's a metaphor uh, about having sex or having sexual pleasure only with his wife. Should your springs be scattered abroad, the streams of water in the street? In other words, should he be sharing that pleasure with other people? Verse 17, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Now, this next scripture too I'm going to read might make some of you uncomfortable. But all scriptures breathed out by God and it's profitable, right? All scripture. Verse 18, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. That's kind of a weird metaphor. To me, like a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Like, I mean, in a couple months, I'm going to shoot them things. <laughs> Just going to be honest. And you know, you know the crazy thing at my house? My wife wants me to kill deer more than I do because she likes the meat. I mean, for me, I just beef is fine. Beef is fine, but she likes venison. So I sacrifice. Verse 19, he goes on, he says, Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. Like, it's very clear. Like, he's giving a metaphor here now of what it's supposed to be like within the context of marriage. That there's supposed to be fidelity, uh, which is faithfulness to his wife. Now, I find this interesting because I believe Solomon is writing this towards the end of his life. And if you know Solomon, he had more than one wife. He had a lot. Between wives and concubines, he was like right at what? A thousand. I mean, history, it doesn't say it in the Bible, but history believes that the queen of Sheba, uh, the queen of, uh, of Ethiopia, he most, uh, most likely had a child with her. Like, I mean, he had a lot of women, but here he is at the end of his life. And he's saying to his son, rejoice in the wife of your youth. I suspect it's the same woman that he was talking about in the Song of Solomon. It's like at the end of it all, at all these other experiences, and he's just like, son, just like, let me boil it down to this. Rejoice in the wife of your youth, because that's where the blessing is. And um, point number one, why does he say all this? Because infidelity brings ruin. Infidelity brings ruin. What is infidelity? It is an act of being unfaithful to one's spouse, having a sexual relationship with someone other than your spouse in the covenant of marriage. That's what it is. Infidelity is the act of being unfaithful to your spouse, the person that you are in a covenant of marriage with. It brings ruin, shame, it brings embarrassment, it brings destruction to children, to families, to marriages, but it always promises something. See, so here it is in verse 1, my son be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, you, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. So he's like, listen, listen, son. Because what he's about to tell them is that infidelity will bring ruin. The lips of the forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. Now, again, last week we talked about this. we got to mention it again. This was a father writing to his son. This is not implying in any way that immorality is all put on women, all right? Or that it's always women who are immoral. It's, not, it's just a father writing to his son. If it was a mother or father writing to their daughter, they would flip that script, I am most certain. For the lips of the forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is as bitter wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. What he's saying is infidelity overpromises and underdelivers. In the beginning, like, like people say that, sex, or that, that sin isn't fun, but sin can be fun for a season. For a season, but always in the end, will bring ruin, will bring destruction. It, God's word promises it. He says, her feet go down to death. 
Her steps follow the path of Sheol. This is kind of like, like what he's saying is if you live in immorality, if you live in infidelity, it's going to bring ruin. It overpromises, underdelivers. It promises sweetness. In the end, it is bitter. In the end, it leads to Sheol. That's the grave. But it's really, the, it was the word for the, kind of the, 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 the idea of hell as punishment. That's where it leads, is what he's implying. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. It's like they don't think about the outcome. They don't think about what's actually going to happen. They don't think about the repercussions. They don't think about that the pleasure is fleeting for a moment. But in the end, it leads to ruin. And now, O son, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. And do not go near the door of her house, lest you honor, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of the foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline and my heart hated reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teacher inclined the ear to instruction. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. See, what he's saying is there's a way in Proverbs 14, I believe it's uh, 14 verse 2, he says in the, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to what? Destruction. There's a way it seems right, but it all starts with the way we think, determines the way we feel, which determines the way we act. And the way that we think, it seems right. The way that we feel, it seems right. The way we act out of our thoughts and feelings seem right, but in the end it leads to destruction. And in the end, the way is death. It always overpromises, and it always underdelivers. The price of infidelity it brings ruin. Verse nine and ten. He said, "Lest you give your honors to other and your years to the merciless." What it, what he's saying there is like when we live in infidelity, it has the potential to, to to revoke the power and the authority that God has entrusted to you. Right? Does that make sense? That's what he's saying. Like it it, it will revoke it will take back the authority that God has entrusted to you the authority that God has entrusted to me as a pastor as an expositor of God's word if I was to commit infidelity it would revoke irreversibly the authority that God has given me see and it can do the same it can do it in your to your children if you are a father especially if you live in infidelity or as a mother like those things they can bring ruin, and the authority that you once would have had in your children's life can be irrevoked. Does that make sense? Where they're like, well, what are you to talk to me about this? Now, a wise child will also say, learn from their parents' dumb tax. Does that make sense? Like, like, okay, I understand. Like, you made those decisions, and I see the pain. I'm not going down that road. A wise person lets other people pay the dumb tax. A foolish person insists on paying it themselves. Verse 13, 11 through 13, we see, he says, at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. Some may say this might give indication to um, sexually transmitted diseases. I don't know. And he says, oh, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teacher or incline my ear to instruction. He was under the conviction now. He, he felt such conviction. He, he knew what he had done, the, the ruin condemned by his own conscience and then in verse 14 he said i am an utter ruin in the midst of the congregation in the assembled congregation because in deuteronomy chapter 22 the law of god was if somebody was caught committing adultery they were to be what stoned to death and he's like in the congregation i'm at utter ruin because sexual immorality brings ruin infidelity brings ruin Number two, fidelity brings blessing. Fidelity. What is fidelity? Faithful to one's spouse. It's just the opposite. Infidelity is being unfaithful to one's spouse. Fidelity is being faithful to one's spouse. Exclusive. Only having any type of sexual interaction or intimacy with one's spouse. And it brings blessing. Now, this is also, so like, culture, society... Within, and this, this thinking is prevalent in the church as well. That sex is just something physical. And like, I, I've literally heard people say, like, you don't buy a shoe without trying it on first. Like, that is not biblical thinking. 
It's not biblical thinking at all. It's so contrary to God's word. The fact is, if all you know is the person you've married and all they know is the person they've married, you have nothing else to compare it to. That's why fidelity, that's why it says flee sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians. Like, get away from it, even as a single person, because you may have intimate, like, a sexual relationship with someone who's not your spouse. You don't marry them, and later you face them in public, and it's uncomfortable. And it can take authority and power away from you. I am grateful. I, I, I grew up in, like, in, in small town, like very local. Um, I, and I'm thankful God spared me through high school, through after, like, even after we were married. Like, it's not that the enemy didn't give opportunity. Does that make sense? But I never have to feel uncomfortable about anybody I face because of that. See the blessing it brings? But I can tell you there have been people, especially when I was in high school, who tried to get me to cross a moral boundary, and now when I see them in public, they're not very comfortable. Does that make sense? It, it, fidelity brings blessing. It brings blessing. Now let's go back to verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. How you interpret verse 16 determines what you think about verse 15 and 17. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the street? Okay, this is a metaphor, but it's actually pretty graphic. And it's a metaphor that when he's saying here, like, should you be sharing uh, sexual relationships with other people other than your own well? What it, he's referring to your spouse. Like, like in verse 15 and 17, he's referring to your spouse. Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers who are, who are with you. Let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely dear, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Fidelity brings blessing. It brings blessing. In verse 18 and 19, reveal the blessings. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your... Like, this is revealing what God intended, the blessing and the joy and the connection and the naked and unashamed that he talks about in Genesis. Honestly, it's, for some, it's a bit erotic and uncomfortable. But I believe that it reveals Solomon's heart to his son. Solomon, who was the wisest man who ever lived, yet made some really foolish decisions. Clear that God intends that in the covenant of marriage for it to be a joy and for it to be a blessing... He also intends for it to be protection in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he talks about this. He talks about the, in the bond of marriage, but he says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife. Now, this is right in the same area that he was talking about singles, the same chapter. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement, for a limited time that you devote yourselves to prayer, but then come back together so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Do you see that one of the purposes of sex within marriage is to avoid sexual temptation? Like, God, like what God says. Like, husbands give to your wives, wives give to your husbands. Now, but here is where there's a lot of uncommunicated and unmet expectations. Because often we don't dialogue about these things enough as husbands and wives. And, like, he, like, and so when you read that, you're like, well, how often is enough? And you're like, are we really going to go here this morning? Like, I don't know. Scripture doesn't say that. That's why it takes communication between you and your spouse. See? And I believe it, it was either, I, I think it was Spurgeon who said twice a week should keep the tempter away. I'm just quoting Spurgeon. I, I don't know. But I'm just saying it's, it's different. And if you, like, if you get upset at me, I'm just quoting Spurgeon. And uh, Spurgeon is, he was a wise old man. <laughs> wiser than me and wiser than you. It brings blessing. 
One of the ways you fight for the purity of your marriage is by taking care of it. Your marriage, the marriage relationship with Christian, within a Christian couple, there is a spiritual aspect to the marriage. There is an emotional aspect to the marriage. And there's a physical aspect to the marriage. And none of them will be healthy. Like, you won't have a healthy, if, if all three of them need to be healthy. Does that make sense? Like, physical, spiritual, emotional. There's, a, there's an aspect within your marriage, uh, within the covenant of marriage. It brings blessing. Now, I think there's this idea, though, for single people sometimes or those who have not yet been married to think that once they get married, they will no longer struggle for sexual purity. And let me just bust your bubble. That's just not true. Okay? Like, I was sure that when I got married, like, all sexual temptation would go away. And two weeks in, I was like, what in the world? Don't leave me up here. Right? It's, it, it's because it's a battle for the mind the way we think, because the enemy wants to divide, right? He wants us to fall. He wants us to sin. He goes on in verse 19, and he says, now, be intoxicated always in her love. This is the idea of like, like alcoholic intoxication. Now, that's not what he's promoting. He's just like saying, be infatuated with your wife, with your husband. Be focused on them. Have eyes for them. Have affections for them. Work on that. Like, the grass isn't greener on the other side of the fence. Know that. Solomon should have known. He tried over a thousand times. And in the end, he's like, just rejoice in the wife of your youth. Because the grass isn't greener on the other side of the fence. That's what he's saying. Like, he's just, that's where the blessing is. Let her body is literally what he's saying. Let affections for her because fidelity brings the blessing. First Thessalonians 4, Paul said this, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality and that you know how to control your body. Self-control. Self-control sexually brings blessing. Uh, God's sanctification, it's his will that you abstain from sexual immorality. Why? Because when we abstain from sexual immorality, he is then able to bless us. One of the things that I ask every couple that I marry, if I do their wedding, I'm going to ask, so if you're thinking about coming to ask me to do your wedding, like, I'm going to ask you this question. Are you guys living sexually pure, or are you living outside of God's parameters with your lives? And um, if they are living outside of God's will for their lives, I will still most likely marry them, but I will not pray a prayer of blessing at their wedding. I can't in good faith ask God to bless what they've walked into saying we're going to do it our own way. Does that make sense? I can't in good faith go to the Lord. Now, God can bless it, and God can grant them repentance. So what I ask people is like, I'm asking you from this day, from, from today, to stop and to abstain. And if you stop and abstain from this day, no, don't go home and think about it, and like one last hurrah, like that's, no, no, today, today, we abstain. Then I can pray a bl- but if not, I can't. Does that make sense? And so, like, because it brings God's blessing. God's blessing. God, God is the creator. We're like, what well, we think we're the God of our own lives, but we're not. We've been purchased with a price. We're his children. He's created it. The creator always knows what's best. And when we honor God with our sexuality, it brings blessing. Fidelity brings blessing. Infidelity, number four, number three, brings judgment. It brings judgment. It always brings judgment. Verse 20, why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. I think verse 22 is probably a reference to Samson. Remember Samson, Delilah, Samson, one of the strongest men who've ever lived, just, just a mighty warrior. In the end, what was his demise? Sex. And it literally got him bound up. I think that's what he's alluding to. Verse 23, he dies for lack of discipline, and because of his own great folly, he is led astray. I think he's talking about Samson. Samson, a powerful man of God, anointed by God, but his own desires, his thoughts that went to feelings, to actions, were his demise. It brought the judgment of God down upon him eventually. Some are like, well, I've just been sinning my face off for years, and I'm getting away with it. It's coming. Judgment's coming. 
It will come, either in this life or in eternity. But he's like, why, why do you want to, he says it in Proverbs 5, why do you want to embrace the, the, uh, uh, someone who is not your wife? Because it reveals the fate in verse 20, 21, 22, and 23. There's bondage and destruction. John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus said, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Romans 6, 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves as obedient slaves, you are a slave to the one whom you obey, either to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. You see it? Sin, the slave to sin, sexual sin, leads to death. A slave to obedience of God's word leads to righteousness, to life. And often the chains of the habits are formed long before you realize and then when you realize, you discover that you don't have the strength to break them. No wonder Proverbs warns us to stay away from it. That's why he says in verse 8, keep your way far from her and do not go near to the door of her house. Don't mess around with it. Proverbs 5.22, he talks about the consequences. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. He shall be held fast by the cords of his sin. It enslaves him. Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord... I'm sorry, brings me to point four. Fidelity springs from a fear of the Lord. Fidelity springs from a fear of the Lord. Proverbs 5, 21. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. I'm sorry, that was 8, 21. For a man's ways, Proverbs 5, 21. For the man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. Fear the Lord. Fidelity springs from fear of the Lord. Do you see what he just said? The ways of the man are before the Lord. He ponders all his paths, the eyes of the Lord. So here's the thing. If you love the Lord and you fear God, it will lead you to live a life of fidelity. If you don't love God and you don't fear the Lord, it will lead you towards a life of infidelity and immorality. See, it's a love for God and a fear of God that that is where fidelity springs from. I love God. I fear God. I know that his eyes are watching. That's what he says. The eyes of the Lord, the, the ways of man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. He ponders all his paths. And what does it mean? That God is pondering. He's thinking about how I walk. He's thinking about what I think. He's thinking about what I do. He's pondering it. My ways are before his eyes. There is this false notion that when the lights go out or no one's watching, you're getting away with it. But the only one that ultimately matters is watching and pondering. And if you think that you can hide from God, because no one else sees, I'm just going to that that would reveal to me and should reveal to you that you don't fear God and most likely don't love God. Because the fear of God and the love of God is what springs forth out of us to create fidelity. In Proverbs 15, verse 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. The Lord is watching. The Lord takes it into account and sees and thinks about all that we do, either good or bad. Proverbs 4.11, I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. So listen, if you're struggling, walking in sexual holiness and purity and fidelity, it starts with a fear of God. And when we started this series in Proverbs, we talked about what is the fear of God, understanding it. Number one, the fear of God is seen in dread and terror. There are some who should have dread and terror of a holy God because God said it is, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of what a holy God. And Galatians 5 tells us very clearly that the sexual immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now it also says the idolater, the jealous, the covetousness, those who covet, those who are jealous, all of those people who make a practice of sinning, just willfully sinning, he says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, the thing is different, though. 
like when we talk about jealousy and covetousness, those are spirit sins that are hard to decipher sometimes. But sexual sin is not hard to decipher. You either are or you aren't. It's, it's pretty clean. You're either acting in a way that's, that's unfaithful, unwise, unrighteous, and unholy, or you aren't. It's, it's pretty clear usually. Like someone to decide, like, am I a gossip? Well, that can be hard sometimes. But it's not hard to know if you're looking at porn. It's not hard to know if you're, commit, if you're walking in a way that is, um, if you're committing infidelity. It's not hard to know those things. But it all starts with dread and terror, fear of God. And then it goes to uh, honor and respect. I respect him as my father, and I'm going to honor him as my father, so I want to live in a manner that is pleasing to him. And then lastly, the fear of the Lord is reverence and awe. I'm in awe of what he's done for me. I am all of his goodness and kindness towards me. I am all in awe of his majesty and glory, yet he has chosen to set his love upon me. And because of that, I want to live in a manner worthy of the gospel so that I do nothing to defame the name of Christ. So I do nothing that would take away from the authority that God has given me or that God would have given you. But some of you have failed. And weeks like this bring just tremendous condemnation. But you need to understand the gospel. Remember the story in John chapter 4. There's a woman at the well. And Jesus goes to her and he asks for a drink. And she was surprised that he would even talk to her because she was a Samaritan and she was a woman. Even his disciples, when they came back from town, they wondered why he was talking to a woman. It wasn't culturally acceptable at all in that day. But Jesus talked to her. And he said to her, like, go tell your husband. She said, well, I don't have a husband. He said, you're right. But you have had five, and the one you're with now is not your husband. <laughs> She's like, oh, I perceive you're a prophet. She's like, I'm not married. He's like, well, you're right. But you were married five times, and um, the person you're now living with is not your husband. I mean, read her mail. You know, how many of you have ever felt in church that the preacher's reading your emails or something? That's God the Holy Spirit meeting each and every person where they are. So Jesus said to her, like, if you go read it in John chapter 4, Jesus was so gracious to her. Shared the gospel and like, like told, told her who he was and she went back to the city and to the town that she came from and like she led this major revival in and, and John chapter 8. The Pharisees brought Jesus, a woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. It says she was caught in the very act of adultery. And everybody bring her before Jesus. He said, what should, do, what should we do with her? <coughs> the law of Moses. Says that we should stone her. And Jesus kneels down. And he writes something in the dirt. He, he says to him, he who is without sin can cast the first stone. And all those religious Pharisees just begin to drop their stones. What Jesus is saying, if you're perfect, go ahead, chuck a stone. If you're not, you better walk away. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Some have fallen short in the area of sex and sexuality and fidelity. Others have fallen short in other areas. And what Jesus was saying in the end, put your stones down. But I think the church has far too often been very ungracious especially the conservative fundamental church has been very ungracious to people who've for lack of better messed up blew it 
colorful past, whatever. And the enemy wants to keep you in that bondage. And God wants to release you. Because if you're in Christ, you're therefore a new creation. He's removed your sins as far as the east is from the west. He no longer holds them against you. And who is the church to think that we can if God has already redeemed and forgiven? Now, yes, there's consequences in this life. You reap what you sow. And there are consequences. I get it. We all have consequences for the choices that we've made. But there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. And so if you have blown it, messed up, today is a new day. It's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. And today is a day where God would be convicting and drawing people back to himself, saying, listen, will you just repent? I think one of the things that can be so hard in this too is some of you have been so wounded by infidelity of a spouse or of a parent. But if you don't deal with your bitterness and unforgiveness, then you would have to drop your stone. See? Because it is sin. Drop your stone. That's what Jesus would say to the church. If you're without sin, keep your stone. If you're not, drop it. Stop with the judgment. Stop with the criticality. Stop it. But then Jesus also said to her, go and sin no more. Because the Galatians is very clear, the sexual immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. Like, well, are we saved by our morality? No, our morale, our pursuit of holiness, just like faith that saves us is faith that changes us. See? And so as we come, you know, I was I, I just looked it up this morning and read it again. In Hebrews chapter eleven, by faith. Rahab the prostitute. By faith. Rahab the prostitute was saved paraphrasing that a little bit. That's what it's implying. She had a colorful past. But she believed. You know, there's grace and forgiveness. There's cleansing. There's new life. It's not your identity. For some, you need to repent of your sexual sin. For others, you need to repent of your self-righteousness. And so as we come to take communion, as we close today, I'm just going to ask you for a moment to sit and reflect what Christ has done for you. Because I said last week, Jesus said that if you look at a woman with lustful intent in your heart, you've already committed adultery in your heart. I'd be hard-pressed to believe that at some level we're not all adulterers. But if you are living in willful sexual sin, profess Christ you need to repent that means stop God's word is clear that if you take communion in an unworthy manner you will eat and drink judgment upon yourself and so if you're living however you want sexually and take communion you very well will be eating and drinking judgment upon yourself if you take communion as a non-Christian you'll be eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian yet, we welcome you. We're so glad you're here with us. There's no judgment. But you can't take communion if you're not a Christian because you've been professing something that's not true of you yet. Pray it will be soon. And you will be eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. So I'm just going to give us 30 to 45 seconds now. Just everyone bow their heads right where they are. And just take a moment. of repentance and asking the Lord to purify your heart.
on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And when he gave thanks, he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink it as often as you do in remembrance of me. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. We remember what you've done for us. Thank you for going to the cross to bear our shame, to suffer our death, to pay for the debt of our sin, so that we can now stand in your righteousness before a holy God. In Christ's name, amen. I just feel like I need to say this before we close, um, before I dismiss you. Um, as a pastor, sometimes it's a, it's a privilege, but it's also sometimes something heavy to carry. I know people's stories. And when I preach a message like this, I feel the weight of that. I know, I know many of your stories. And I want you to know that no matter what your past is, I don't look at you any different than anyone else. Because if you're in Christ, Christ doesn't. And how dare I do anything different? I love you guys. Have a great week. Remember, we have a mission. And above all, put on love.